Yo, episode eight for reals. Welcome to Solving Healthcare. I'm Quadro Caramante. I'm an ICU and palliative care physician here in Ottawa and the founder of Resource Optimization Network. We are on a mission to transform healthcare in Canada. I'm going to talk with physicians, nurses, administrators, patients and their families because inefficiencies, overwork and overcrowding affects us all. I believe it's time for a better healthcare system that's more cost effective, dignified and just for everyone involved. Welcome back. Guys, I'm super excited about this episode, part two, with our discussion with Adrian Matheson. But before getting into it, I want to talk to you guys about sponsorship. As you guys know, we're trying to grow the show. The feedback's been incredible. The growth has been incredible. And to be able to achieve that, we do need funds. And so we've been approached by a couple of companies, which we'll be talking about. But I just want to say out of the gate that anything that we promote comes from a good place. It's stuff that we believe in, stuff that I think will serve our listeners well. So I just wanted to say that out of the gate because um, I think it's important to say. So our latest sponsor, BetterHelp. This is an online counseling service, which I can't express how important the work that they're doing. This is a group that has over 4,000 counselors. They provide counseling services for teens, for individuals. They do marriage counseling. And what I like about them is that they're affordable. You have access via video chat, via call, via messaging. Whatever serves you, you have that option with BetterHelp. So if this sounds like something you're interested in, please go to betterhelp.com and use the promo code SOLVINGHEALTHCARE and you'll get 10% off registration. All right. So without further ado, our second part conversation with Dr. Adrian Matheson. Enjoy. One of the interesting things that you mentioned uh, before the interview is that you've worked at several mm-hmm. different places. Yes. And for whatever reason. Yes. You feel that we're seeing more anxiety locally. So we're in Ottawa, obviously. Yeah. Uh, maybe speak a little okay. bit about that. So I have worked as a psychologist in three provinces, Alberta, BC, and now Ontario. I have no reason uh, to explain this, but what I have noticed anecdotally is the number of anxiety referrals that I get here in Ottawa are much greater than I have received in other provinces where I have practiced. Hmm. I've speculated about what that might be. Um, And again, this is not based in anything other than just my kind of anecdotal experience clinically and some ideas that I'm wondering about. Um, But one is we are a government town where families have a, uh, the government does a lovely job of mental health, uh, extended health benefits, Mm -hmm. really nice, rich benefits that federal government employees have access to. So it may be a nature of that, that I'm just seeing more kids that are anxious, but functioning than I may have in other provinces where perhaps the extended health is not as available. That's a possibility that I've wondered about. Um, the others, I don't know if I want to say. No, I, I, you know, I think edu- I, the reason I'm hesitating in saying it is because I actually don't know if this is true. Um, it's speculation. It's speculating uh, that, we, you know, uh, we particularly where my office is located um, in Ottawa, we have a very white collar society where there's high education levels, many families uh, working outside of the home, like both parents working outside of the home. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a uh, there is sort of an in, in an innate pressure for towards academics Mm. that I see here, not, not overt pressure. I don't see parents coming in and saying like, I want my kid to be the top of the class. In fact, I can't think of one time I've heard a parent say that, but I'm, I'm wondering maybe just about the, 
the education level and kind of this push for academics. I mean, I don't know. I I don't have good reason to explain no, it. I mean, I think... The, actually, I have one other idea. I'm going to interrupt okay, you. Yeah. The other thought that I have is it's actually has nothing to do with the location and more just the time. So yeah. And also for the reasons that we've described around, you know, accessibility to technology and overscheduling mm-hmm. and all of these things that over my career, which happens to be over three provinces, it has increased where in Ottawa, I just happened to be here at this time. Yeah. I, I mean, it's obviously going to be hard to pinpoint, but I, I think it is worth mentioning because there are things that make our city unique, you know, like the, yeah. the fact that it's very government, yeah. uh, like I think 70% of, of people are, are tied to the government. And so increased benefits, yeah. more white collar, like I grew up in Edmonton, you grew up in Lethbridge, um, yeah, much more blue collar, yeah. um, and, uh, less education. So I, I, you know, I know it's just speculation, but I, I do think there is value of raising the issue and just having yeah. some thoughts around that. So that would be a good dissertation project. So if there's any students yes. out there, they can look at it. And they, you're, you're willing to supervise? I absolutely will supervise. Wow. Yeah. Um, I also just wanted to mention about Edmonton for a moment. When I was working there, I uh, worked at a place called CASA which stands for Child, Adolescent, and Family Mental Health. The acronym doesn't make sense. I thought I was having a stroke. You you may have had a stroke, but also doesn't make sense. Um, The reason I mention that is I saw several families in Edmonton who moved from other provinces to be able to access the public services that were available at CASA. So I'm giving a big shout out. We had a team. We were all, we were all, it's primarily publicly funded. There was private donation. Like there was, there was fundraising uh, from the private sector to support uh, the organization. But we had a team where we would see kids zero to five. There were two infant and preschool psychiatrists that were leading the team. And then a whole team of psychologists, social workers, nurses, and occupational therapists to support these families. And it was free for families. Yeah, it was unbelievable. And we supported children from zero to 18. So my team didn't, uh, but we would then refer to school age services, which would the assessments that we talked about earlier. Uh, in fact, I have one, somebody joining my team who, who worked there is going to be doing assessments for us where they would do the assessments that's covered. They had access to psychiatry. Uh, they had access to therapy all within a collaborative community service, which I would love to talk a lot about because that's the answer that I think uh, my answer to your question about healthcare and where the problem lies is really about this collaborative community service-based um, mental health support, which is linked very strongly with avoiding future involvement with hospital justice. Yeah, we should talk about yeah. that. Well, first of all, just yeah. just hearing that, like, I, I didn't know that about mm-hmm. uh, CASA and, and, and yeah. some of the initiatives in Alberta. And, yeah. you know, in general, I do find, like, you know, Alberta's a have, not a I have don't know, not. is what it do still, have? I don't know what don't it know. is. At the time I was there, it was a have. I, yeah, a have yeah, province. Which, and, and so I don't know if that's still the case. But I, I've seen other s- services, like, um, Similar, like uh, in terms of uh, mental health resources that some other uh, some other provinces didn't initiate or didn't have the resources to Mm -hmm. implement. But, um, yeah, I think it's a good segue into. I want to talk first before we segue into something about why I think ADHD is prevalent, because I haven't talked about that yet. Okay, Can Um, I do that? Yeah, you could you could throw down. T- talk to me about the why ADHD is prevalent. Okay, I'm, I'm jumping making, all over on you. I'm no, sorry. No, I'm making a personal note. <laughs> okay, make a personal to, uh, note, and then I'll stop the uh, my type A ness in just a moment. Yeah, uh, but I was going to say, why do we? Why do I think we're seeing? Because I, as I said, the our primary referrals, I would say at this point, are these anxiety symptoms that we're seeing, and also um, ADHD symptoms. The reason I want to uh, go back to it is because of the early academics. I want to like scream it from the rooftops. Yes, yes. Right? So we are getting referrals often for young boys, but it's for girls as well that are impulsive, hyperactive, and distractible in school. Uh, They do not have anything wrong with them. I'm doing air quotes. Um, It's just that there is a lack of fit 
between where they are developmentally and what the expectations are in a traditional classroom. Mm. And that those expectations academically are getting earlier and earlier and earlier and earlier, which is not based on the developmental literature that is based on political decisions. Convenience. Yeah. So I, for example, have a child who will be three next, well, actually next month, but next year she is set to start junior kindergarten here in Ontario. That is a unique thing in Ontario. Uh, we keep going back in to Canada. It's, it's the only province uh, sorry, I think. Unique thing. Yeah. yeah to, in Canada to Ontario. Um, uh, and so, you know, I'm faced with this discussion of do I send her at the age of three, even though I know all of the literature around that or not. The reason I point that out is that's a very privileged um, question, I guess. Right. Um, because it is free. And it is available to everybody. So that, I mean, that's a really important thing to point out. However, developmentally, I think we are seeing these behavioral challenges in school because they're not yet. They're not ready. They're not ready. Um, yes. And also the question often is I worked on a project at the University of Alberta where we looked at school readiness. And really the question that we should have been asking is, are schools ready to for to the kids, have three and a half and four year olds. That's right. Uh, not so much are the kids ready for school. So we're asking them to fit into the box that the school system is happens to be um, structured as. Whereas that's not reasonable. That it's not reason. Lots of kids, it is. It's fine. Right. But for some kids, it's not. I mean, literally, like just to give some context to people not not in or not in Ontario, like so, like one of my kids. December 28th is his birthday. I didn't realize that. Really? Yeah. Oh, so I didn't like realize that. So it's like three, four days he would have been the January, yeah. like, uh, um, Malcolm Gladwell, awesomeness child. But um, That's like mine, just uh, yeah, I know. Point. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I know, I know. You got the January, baby. Um, and forgive me, Mar- Marlo, for busting this out. The kid could barely wipe his own butt, and you got to put him on a bus to go to school. Oh, I know. He's three and a half. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And expect it to be all this great behavior and all this stuff. That's BS, y'all. Yeah. Like, I I mean, I have, we both have late birthdays. In Alberta, we were f- almost five starting school, yeah. which. And it's still half day at that time. And it's still half day. It's still day. half day. Exactly. Yeah. And Ontario, you're talking full day. Uh, yeah. These kids, and like. <laughs> full day the year they turn four is when they start. Exactly. Yeah. And they're so like I, losing. They're like, I, I, we've lost so many mittens, gloves. Yeah. I have a, a friend of mine who is a teacher, actually happens to be your son's teacher. I don't know if I'm allowed to oh, say yeah, that. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, he's good. Who goes to Ikea at the beginning of the year to buy cots um, because the school is not set up. It's a school. They're not set up for preschool, which mm-hmm. is what three and four-year-olds are developmentally. So she buys cots uh, out of her pocket to lay She's out. Amazing, she way. is amazing. Like, oh, oh my, my gosh. God. I know. Oh my God. What a uh, as they all are. My goodness. Like, you know, I think for all of the uh, challenges in the system, I have the opportunity to, to collaborate with so many teachers here in this job. And it's just like blows my mind what they do for these kids. Um, but she, you know, she buys cots because they sleep hmm. in the afternoon. That's not necessarily kindergarten. So, what is the answer to that? I think the answer is instead of funding these uh, early years uh, kind of school placements, we actually fund preschools mm. that are well set up to support these younger children before they get into the traditional school system. Different union. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> that's my soapbox moment on it. Uh, with, at the risk of, you know, I guess – complaining too much about it because there's lots of evidence to support um, good, like quality early care is very important in later outcomes, uh, particularly for high risk children. So for many children, junior kindergarten may actually have benefits. So Mm -hmm. it's a complicated issue, I guess, is what I'm what I'm trying to say. But the broader issue around why we see these kids with these ADHD type symptoms is not because they have ADHD always. Sometimes they do, for Mm. sure. It's a real thing. But lots of times it's just because they are not yet ready to conform to what is required of them 
in a classroom setting. Hmm. And then, so then getting back to your question of, so then what happens to this kid? They develop a whole bunch of problems later on, academic problems, social problems, their self-esteem is impacted, their view of themselves, et cetera. That's what I want to say about early academics. Fantastic. Okay. Okay. What I wanted what, before your lovely interjection. Yes. Sorry. No, no. The the thing that I thought was so valuable uh, that you mentioned uh, before we had this interview was some of the solutions, like in terms of designing your city, your okay. your uh, uh, community, what you could do to tackle some of these okay. issues. I have lots of ideas. Okay. So this was where I found uh, being invited to be on this podcast really exciting for me because it was nice to relook at what the solutions are and what the data is saying to us uh, of how do we respond to this, these challenges. Um, and there are several things that we can do, and it has to do with where we are putting our funding dollars. So what we know, um, as I mentioned earlier, I worked on a project at the University of Alberta called the ECMAP project. This acronym does work. It was the early child. Actually, it doesn't work. Early right, child development mapping project. Okay. And what we did was across the province, and this is in several provinces across Canada, uh, out of mostly out of BC is where it started, I think, with the help project at, at UBC. Um, we looked at how communities are preparing children for school, um, which is complicated based on the context of our previous conversation. But we looked at how our community is doing at preparing kids for school. What we learned is that communities where there were resources, and I can tell you specifically what those resources are if you want me to, um, but things like access to primary care people, that's GPs, that's nurses in the community, that's social workers, access, greater access to those types of services, uh, libraries, community centers, community engagement, uh, the amount of events that are happening in the community, uh, all of these factors in the community, better prepared children for school. Mm. We were we were using the early development instrument, looking at school readiness on various factors uh, of um, school preparedness. Um, so all of that to say, in terms of solutions, I would argue, as a person that works with young children, let's put our money into communities so that at a community level we can support our children in healthy development. Helping moms have, and all of this is supported in the literature, helping, uh, like having nurses come in and doing pre and postnatal education and care mm -hmm. for moms. Um, having access to good quality preschools is, has a huge impact on healthy development. And how that links with what you're doing in terms of healthcare is then they are less likely, and again, this is supported in the literature, they are less likely to come into contact with the hospitals and with the justice system. If we prevent early on by funding these community resources, which I think is very interesting. I think it's, I think it's amazing to hear it because there's more like even for general health, I think there's mounting evidence that you, you live in a city that's more walkable, for example, yeah, you're less likely to have, coronary disease or chronic illness of any of, of, of all sorts and knowing that creating a more healthy environment produces better ch uh, child experience better uh, uh, child readiness for school yes healthier uh, mentally mental health. And, mental and physical yep. health I don't know, man. I guess. Uh... Well, and so we can look at this in a few different ways. Uh, you know, as I mentioned to you in our previous conversation, there are people that are looking at investing in the early years as a financial decision, uh, which I think is important to point out because that's who's making these decisions is our funders. Um, and it is financially better for us to fund these early years supports rather than build more prisons. Oh, yeah. And uh, 
our hospitals, you would be able to speak to this, are overrun. I know in the, in the, our, our, we have CHEO here and they do an amazing job. We do have community supports in Ottawa, like Crossroads, for example, where you can go in as a walk-in patient and get this community care that I'm talking about, this primary care right in the community. We do have access to those things. But for a family to get Crossroads to come into their home, I'm speaking without, uh, this is anecdotally just talking to the families I work with here in the office. Mm -hmm. I haven't checked this, but the wait is significant, like probably a year. So if you're really struggling, um, a year in the life of a young child is huge and it's not fast enough. And so then we cannot buffer in the way that is really possible. We cannot buffer from these later challenges that kids are going to experience or may are are more likely to experience like entering into the hospital system uh the psychiatry Mm. uh services there emerge who are not set up to support these kids necessarily so there's we that's that's not the to my limited knowledge of the hospital system my understanding is that's not the purpose of emerge we need to be doing that in the community we don't have the funding to do that so we have the data that says it works. We know what to do. We we know the interventions to support these families, but we don't have the resources to be able to do it. Wow. The other thing I would just mention is there's lots of evidence, um, and this is talking about the communication piece. When you said to me initially, what is the issue that you face in healthcare? I wasn't really sure. But the first thing that came to mind was that I'm a psychologist in the community. I'm working essentially on an island unless I take the extra steps uh, to reach out to schools, physicians, psychiatrists that are working with the family. That's very hard to do um, in private practice. There's not really a lot of space for that. So it's difficult. It's not streamlined. And that communication is is hard. Mm. Um, The reason I come back to that is because there is evidence to suggest that communities... (laughs) Communities that have collaborative care, meaning streamlined service between health and education and community, we have shown that those the trajectories for those children are better, meaning healthier developmental outcomes for them, less likely to be involved in the hospital systems, less less likely to be involved in the justice system if we can integrate our services early on. So, like... The evidence is there. The evidence uh, is there. 100% the wow. evidence is there. Yeah. This is very enlightening. Yeah. So I would also just add in child development, the Scandinavian countries are always our golden standard. Yeah. They always have really great outcomes and they do things quite differently than we do. Uh, so interestingly, on this same note, just to look at what's happening internationally, we looked at Finland um, where in, I think it was 2015, 2010 to 2015, Finland implemented a policy to emphasize the development and the use of community mental health services in primary care. So what we're talking about, access to social workers, school counselors, nurses, psychologists at the community level. And what they have found is that the suicide rate has decreased by 41%. And the number of psychiatric visits to hospital has decreased by 54%. And they also looked at the um, impact of community-based services versus hospital intervention in mental health and found that the community-based intervention is much more effective at buffering, particularly, they were looking at suicide, uh, Absolutely. suicide rates. It's, too, um, it's, uh, it's almost too late when they're coming into the well. So I, I mean, I argue that, but my area is zero to five. So no, uh, I, I mean, it's not my area of expertise yeah. either. So I guess, I, and uh, also Spain is doing something similar, and they're finding similar uh, results where um, that they're finding that those uh, those community networks, those collaborative community mental health networks, are much more effective uh, than the hospitals in providing that care effectively. So what I'm hearing is the evidence is pretty sound. I'm saying, give us the money, give, give it to us, us, and let us do work at the community level. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, and the thing that, you know, it's worth mentioning, like we are seeing more anxiety, suicide rates amongst 
our, 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 our teens, like all this is on the increase and there are kids, man. Like I, I know there's going to be some non-parents listening, but once you experience being a parent, you'll understand like it's your kids. We got to do more. Yeah. You know what I mean? We can't just stand idle. And when we know there's a clear problem that has solutions and they're not, you know, groundbreaking. Yes, it might take some investment. Yes, it might take some some uh, thought and, 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 and resources, but it's worth it. It's the kids. It's the future. It's worth it um, uh, because it's the kids and it's the future, but it's also worth it because it's a better financial decision. And That's it's a more good effective. Point. Yeah. Ultimately, when kids aren't going, um, needing to use inpatient services and, mm-hmm. and increase in medications mm-hmm. and all these stuff, like, mm-hmm. absolutely. Mm-hmm. And when we, in preparation for this podcast, when we were looking at early intervention, the research really focuses in the area of like 12 as right. early. I mean, 12 is kind of old for me here. We see teenagers. I tend to refer them on to my team. But um, we need to intervene way earlier mm. than that. We, we need these supports before school um, and, and in school because by 12, there's lots of stuff that happens. And drawing from an area that I'm definitely not that is definitely not within my scope is epigenetics, of course which talks about these predispositions to something, say, like anxiety mm-hmm. um, and experience, kind of turning on this light switch of anxiety based on experience. So if we can avoid that and create these more positive experiences for kids early on, that will just internally buffer from later anxiety symptoms that you end up seeing in the mm. hospital or psychiatrists end up seeing in the hospital mm. um, where they're overrun. Uh, wow. Yeah. So intervene early is my soapbox message because it works. Amen. Prevention. You yeah. Know. Yeah, that's right. So, Adrian. Yeah. I have a, a couple other questions for you. Okay. General advice to parents. If you, you got that soapbox and it might be something we probably... Answered it already. I have an answer. Okay. I so I uh, I we have said it before, but I'm going to say it as many times as I have the opportunity to say it. I really, really, really believe that kids are wanting to do well, Mm. Um, and I think if we shift our thinking in those early morning battles to get to the kid dressed and the letters from school about misbehavior um, or the difficulties with learning or homework battles or bedtime battles or social problems, all of those things I truly believe kids do not want to experience. They tell me that mm. every day. I ask them. I like I'm so fortunate to get to work with kids because they are They see things in just such a simple, logical way. And so often I'll just be like, what do you think is going on? Oh, well, this is it. Oh, okay. Well, let's go (laughs) sort that out. They don't want to be in trouble. They want to do well. Um, They want to transition from one thing to another. They, They want their parents to be proud of them. Truly, without exception, really without exception, that has been my experience in working with children. So what I think parents can do is access support, even though I've talked about the barriers. There is support there. We, As my family, even though this is my job, we access support around parenting and for our children. Uh, it's, it's so important to get some ideas and some perspective on how to make things as healthy as possible in our homes. But on a broader level, even without accessing those services, is really just to understand that it's not a they won't do it. It's that they can't do it. Mm. So if we shift our thinking to that kid that's given us a hard time about whatever and try to think, what is it that they need? How can right we help now? them succeed? Yes. So I say to parents all the time, what is the need behind that behavior? Mm. If they're lying to you, it's one I hear all the time. Okay, sure, we could like punish that, I guess. 
But the bigger and more important question, I think, for parents is what is the need behind that behavior? Why did they not want to tell what they did? Because I'd much rather talk to my kid that lies to me every single day of his life uh, about what the barrier is in our community, what he was worried about in terms of my response, what he was worried, what the shame that he felt, the embarrassment that he felt, um, the trouble he thought he was going to get into is a much more valuable conversation than me saying, ah, you lied. iPad gone for a week. But you you also recognize like you're, you're a skilled professional. Like, yeah. Tell my husband that. that. Exactly. Tell my husband that because <laughs> I give him free advice all day. Oh, my goodness. And he doesn't. Lucas, I'm so he, sorry. It doesn't. It's not received in the same way it is in my office. I'll just but, say that. But yeah, I guess my my concern is like, especially in the moment, like trying to tease out some of these things. You know, I, okay. I, I don't I don't. I I, okay. The other I mean? thing I say to parents all the time is to stop talking. <laughs> yes. We talk too much. Kathy. <laughs> stop talking. We talk I too much. It. In those moments where things are ramping up and we feel our heart rate starting to go and we know we're heading for a battle or that there's going to be some struggle, we tend to start saying, you're going to lose this. Why are you doing this? Your brother, da, 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 like all this stuff. I think, I know, actually, I'll say I know. If we actually just stopped for a second and kind of sat down on the floor and gave it a minute, it will deescalate. Mm. But we talk too much. Uh, so I would suggest, it sounds very simple, but I say this to families in my office all the time. If we just say, what is it that you're needing right now to help you get ready for bed and and really manage our own regulation around it so that we can co-regulate our child things mm-hmm. tend to go better so basically i should stop taking up taking off my shirt and rage that's right and yeah uh, we would advise it into the crowd we would advise that yeah, yeah. I'm gonna stop that's a boys, general I'll stop doing that. i feel very mm-hmm. safe providing that advice even though you are not a client of mine okay. I, I will free advice yeah i will uh, provide that doing the show okay shirts stay on yeah uh, no, and I'm making it sound very simple, um, and it's not. And I'm a parent of three, and I lose it. Uh, in fact, my kid just told me this morning, I parent with a red face. <laughs> 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 so, I mean, I'm in it too, right? Like, it's all in a, in a soapbox. But, but I, generally, I think if we just shift our expectations of our children from this um, won't to can't our thinking about it helps us to remain calmer and helps the attachment relationship remain we didn't talk about attachment that's a whole we do a whole other segment on what attachment is and what it is not um but that ultimately in those very difficult moments what we want our kids to know is that we can handle that Mm -hmm. and we're not going to lose our cool at least some of the time and we're going to help them through their struggle Rather than rather than shaming them for their misbehavior, mm. they're not misbehaving; they're struggling. Yeah, and, and that's at any with- degree, any degree of uh, challenges that I see here from the kids with very severe OCD or oppositional defiant disorder. I'm same thing. Mm. It is to a greater degree. Um, and we see those kids, absolutely, or the kids with severe ADHD, who, you know, like who are on the roof. And my suggestion to them is calling the police because their kids on the roof. Like, I, I get that they, these are very real problems that families are dealing with. But as, as a fundamental belief, if we really change our thinking to them as struggling little people mm-hmm. that are learning and growing rather than kids that are giving us a hard time, it just changes our internal dialogue and our um, perspective. perspective, our bandwidth to yeah. be able to cope with some of those challenges. And it it maintains that attachment relationship, which one more soapbox is so important in a thousand different ways that I won't even go into. But there's so much evidence to, to speak to the importance of those the attachment in those early relationships. Wow. I, I feel inspired yeah. to be a good parent after leaving this okay. being more present and good. making sure the kids not know taking that your that, shirt off no no more shirts off yeah i'm not promising that yeah totally but yeah. um no definitely i think we all have work to do 
Agreed. I'm with you. I'm with you a hundred percent. Uh, do you, ha- do you, can I ask you some questions? Yes. You get to okay. ask. Que- so host, you are in my office, of, uh, uh, as host, we said yes. at the beginning, and this is a child therapy office. So as you can see all around you, we use play therapy. I am a play therapist, which essentially means that, um, talking about all this serious stuff can be fun. And we use a lot of representational, uh, tasks to help us understand. So, for example, you'll see over there a sand tray mm. and a whole bunch of characters. So I would say to your child who comes in, build your world for me. So what I get to learn is how do they represent you? Are you a panda? Oh, that's cuddly and silly. Or are you a T-Rex? The child hasn't had to tell me anything, but I have a really good understanding of their perspective or their perception of what's going on. Who is in the world? Who makes it into the world? New partners, for example. Siblings, do they make it into the world? Um, And where are they in the world and how do they represent themselves? Are they a unicorn with, you know... People all around. Black unicorn. <laughs> a black unicorn. I actually don't have a black unicorn. I only have a white one. Noted. Um, <laughs> or are they a bunny? Uh, so if they're struggling at school and I ask them, to, oh, just build recess for me. Where are they in recess? Who is the unicorn? Because that's who we're going to end up talking about. Are they off to the side? Are they in the group? So it's just kind of fun ways of understanding what we do here in the office. It's fun. Kids love it. Uh, they don't need I'm not sitting with a clipboard asking them about their deepest, darkest secrets. We're playing. Uh, another one is feelings Jenga, which if we had more time, I would make you do where you just play Jenga and every block has a feeling and you talk about a time that you feel that. So they've just played a game of Jenga, but I have a really good understanding of how they see themselves, how they see their experiences. And then we can work from there. So even though you're a fancy doctor now, no, I ain't f- nothing yeah, fancy about me. No, you like but- save people's lives and all of that. Mm. However, I have seen you in many occasions uh, with the maturity level of a child. <laughs> so I thought, I thought it would be fun to have you do a small task. I am ready. Okay. <laughs> so these are random questions that I have not uh, selected randomly. They were selected purposefully for you. And I had a very hard time because I want to ask you all of them. Okay. But I'm going to choose just a few. Uh, these are questions that I will often ask older kids uh, that just that are having a hard time talking or we're not really sure what we're talking about or what's going on um, or to help them warm up. And these are also questions that I will often bring to parties. So you can imagine how fun I am. <laughs> I can't imagine how right? fun you are. Yeah, I know. So, absolutely. okay. Uh, first question, Dr. Kermenting. How would your friends describe you in a few sentences? Oh, wow. Right? This is uh, mm-hmm. this is a tough one. Um, how would they describe me? So, these are people closest to me. Uh, you can decide. Okay. That will have meaning that I'm interpreting. Okay. It doesn't. No. Yeah, you decide. You decide. They will... Um, most of my friends, I think, would describe me as funny. Um, <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> it's so awkward. Uh, funny. Yeah, because I'm your friend. Yeah, okay. and you don't yeah, find no. me funny. Um, uh, <laughs> I prefer your wife to you. In terms of funniness? What? <laughs> Kathy is not funny. Oh, my God. Goodness. I did. Like, no, I guess. Uh, yeah, you are. You are definitely funny. I would agree. But uh, I'm going to stop interviewing. Okay. Go ahead and answer the uh, question. Funny, uh, dedicated. Um, um, I think most of them would agree. Good, good father. Family means a lot. And present. Like, I think if if my friends need me. Yeah. You, you, they don't have to. Like, I would hope they don't have to ask twice for anything. Like, if. They need, you know, someone to talk to, to be, to be present with, to whatever it might be. Um, they can rely on me. I agree with that. You have done that for me on several occasions. That is very true. One of which was when I sent you a photo of my child's urine. It made the podcast. I know. So I wanted to, <laughs> I wanted to just 
share with your listeners that that's normal. Uh, <laughs> that somebody would ask their friend. I, but I was and, telling you to pee in, was fine. I know, but I felt over time you needed to verify I, I that with several not photos. Need to see more photos of pee. I was like, He's, and he you know was what? Fine, that he? was private. And I feel I need to share I didn't, I didn't that the person name. that sent those those photos is a very a normal person oh, that air, had air concerns. Air quotes. Okay, so um, I ha- I've picked more, and you can play whichever of these you want or you don't want. Um, what advice would you give to yourself five years ago? Five years ago? Yeah. So what, 2014? So I. I would say... What were you doing in 2014? 2014, I was just starting at the Ottawa Hospital. I just was almost completed a master's in health admin, but still trying to find my way in terms of uh, work-life balance, where where my career was going to go. So I think if I think about it career-wise, I would say my advice is just believe in yourself like you have a vision and you're you see it materializing you feel it materializing have faith in it don't doubt in yourself and things will be okay in terms of like other general stuff don't sweat the small stuff like life is short like uh, i think you and i have both both experienced loss and and within the last five years and it really makes you appreciate uh how how um vulnerable life is and and so you know i i would just i'd say if you want to do something and you have the capacity to do it just do it i like it that's why we're here actually uh what is the kindest thing that someone has ever done for you oh wow kindest thing i i have I don't know if this is the kindest thing, but there's two there's two stories I have off the top of my head. One was I was a resident second year, and it's like four in the morning, and we're getting hammered, like consult after consult, and sick patients on the floor, and I think I was visibly stressed. And this nurse, I think her name's Denise, an emerge nurse, brought me over without me saying anything she brought over a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and i could have like i could have cried at the time i picked her up hugged her like it was <laughs> like i've never seen like a, you know like it was a, uh i just gave her the, a big hug and i was just like this is so kind and so meaningful um thank you and um that was one and the I other love one love that one it's it's just I mean it's probably not the kindest but it's off the top of my head and then the second one was uh, actually well, no I'll just leave it at that oh okay it's not the megaphone I thought it might be your because did your wife oh, not yeah, give you the megaphone a lot of people don't know this about me but I own a megaphone and my wife bought a megaphone for me it was over ten years ago my first megaphone and you you ask yourself why would anybody own a megaphone a megaphone and i would say it's a reasonable question. why don't you right. own a megaphone okay. like this is how you produce some authority in your your community so you know we've we've tapped into something there <laughs> tell me uh, if you see somebody with a megaphone it's shout out to command no yeah. it's yeah it's you like some guys no one else has speeding uh, right. in the re- residential area and you go yo slow uh-huh. down okay guaranteed they slow down yeah, probably out of shock. <laughs> yes, but that's uh, it's it's all good. And okay, you just creeps because every time you leave our house, I, I bust there, up the megaphone. There is, yeah, and I've I'm had like, to explain it to the Sorry, children, and neighbors, it's a thing. Yeah, she does not have syphilis. <laughs> Sorry, don't worry about it. Okay, uh, two more questions. What have you witnessed that has strengthened your faith in humanity? What have I witnessed that strengthens my faith in humanity? Um, I would say the work that I see every day amongst our, our palliative care group, like especially the nurses and the social workers, and then some of the work I've seen at the shelter um, downtown for the homeless, the people that give their time, volunteer their time, taking care of people that have no relation to them 
and really securing, like creating an environment where these these folks feel secure and, and safe and someone that listens to their concerns. I, I think when you see that, you really, it's hard not to have faith in humanity. That is true. Okay. Oh, I'm having one a hard more. time. One more. Okay. Um, what was your childhood dream and has it changed? So there was two dreams. One was to make the show be in the NHL. So that has definitely changed. But uh, I still like walk, watching my boy, Connor McDavid. Right. Sup, Oilers. Okay. Um, this is the year, people. Uh, the second was I knew for a long time I wanted to be a doc. When I was a kid, I wanted to be a plastic surgeon, which I still to this day don't really know why. But oh, okay. it went from being a plastic surgeon to a pediatrician. I know it's not politically correct to say, but I love Dr. Huxtable. Mm-hmm. You know, watching the guy. No, yeah, you can't say that anymore. Yeah, I know, exactly. Yeah. But you did do a very serious Dr. Huxtable. Huxtable? Yeah, Huxtable. The, the guys, You were that for Halloween one year. Yes. And Many years repeatedly ago. Repeatedly at show. Never again. Don't worry. Um, that was prior to prior to the any yeah, knowledge yeah, of exactly disclaimer there. Yeah, thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, and then yeah, I wanted to be a pediatrician, and then peds was not for me, and ended up doing adult ICU, which is definitely that and palliative care definitely my calling. Perfect. So I'm I have a the thousand dream. other questions, but I'll stop now. Absolutely. I I think one thing I want to end with. Is a time mm-hmm. where you felt your job was you've done good. Oh, you man, you oh, man. where your efforts were were fruitful and the client was able to benefit and they got to express their gratitude for your tender loving care. All right. Um I'm I'm really fortunate in this work um, that and I think it is because I work with children. Uh, Kids are really adaptable and with with the right support, they do better. So I get to see a a tangible change in a child's functioning in their world and a family's functioning. I get to see that every single day. Um, And so it's hard for me to pick a specific example of that because um as i say kids kids get better with the right support like if people shift around them they can do really well and i'm so thankful for that so i i would say where i feel um that there's gratitude or where i feel i've done my job well is when a family comes to me in crisis And we do the intervention, whatever that intervention is. And the child is, I'm doing your quotes, better. Mm -hmm. They no longer need to be seen here. And I say to the parents, they no no longer need to be seen. You're good to go. And then often my sort of, um, my reward in that is they will say, "Uh, no, I think... We need to still come. And I'll say, like, you don't, but okay. Um, And the reason I think that comes to me is, one, uh, it's a positive experience that we create here. Um, I love these kids. Like, I really love these kids. All of them. Like, I just, they just, I get to see them grow. I get to see them get better. I get to see them change. I get to see parents' growth. Mm -hmm. And I just, like love these families. Um, and so when they see this as a place that is not like, let's get out of here and get that part of our life over, but rather they see it as a place where I have become a part of their network and their community. And in some cases, the like family, their man. family, yeah. I get pictures, not of people's pee, uh, <laughs> but I get pictures of, you know, kids at their ballet recital Mm. when we have been working on like anxiety or shyness uh uh, and and they're up on the stage in like a 
show uh, or tests. Like kids bring me tests all the time. And I'm just like, my mind is blown. Because first of all, this stuff is hard. <laughs> like when they get into high school math and stuff, I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. But they're so proud. They bring their homework. They show it to me. I hear from families, like if we're working, say, on summer camp and they're, the kids are scared to go, but they really want to, or hockey, speaking of hockey, hockey tryouts mm. for so many kids that like my whole kind of end of August, beginning of September is hockey tryout time here. That's what I'm talking to everybody about because they want to do it, but they're having panic attacks in the change room. And then I get the email forwarded to me of that, you know, they made the team hmm. or they didn't. And just that I, I kind of, I, I get to be a part of that network, not as a, a burden, but as a, a benefit to the family, it just never gets old for me. Wow. Like, and I really on like, I feel so privileged right. that, that they shared those moments with me. It's, it's pretty awesome. I mean, you're here because you do amazing work and you do vital work yeah. and you leave an impression on families kids and it's lifelong yeah and i hope so this, i really hope so I, you know what i know so and I, I think this is why it's important to spread the word on yes how important this stuff is and i gotta thank you adrian for doing this i gotta tell you it's it's been a lot of fun and, good uh I, except I'm for those questions. i know and i didn't and give you questions. any of the hard ones because i didn't want to see the ugly cry uh, oh, yeah. when no, you're on I, the podcast I, absolutely <laughs> and i cry ugly uh no but i, I it's really... the privilege is honestly mine i'm so thrilled to be a part of it and um you know be part of of such a cool initiative but also with some like your guests have been interesting i've been learning from the podcast so i'm really excited mm. to be able to be a part of it also i've never heard you call me adrian before you, that's yeah true, eh? I, that was yeah, very official yeah. I, I have gonna, a nickname bust, yeah yeah i have a nickname and it's not and and i've never heard quadro call me anything about that but there you go we're being very fancy there, there we go very thanks professional. Age. yeah uh, <laughs> this is awesome and we're going to do this again good thank you so much wow how was that <laughs> thanks for tuning in for our episode with Dr. Adrian Matheson. In terms of lessons at an administrative level, early intervention works. We need the infrastructure and the policy to make it happen. From a clinician level, intervene early. That's when we're going to have the most impact on our kids. And lastly, from a general public point of view, let go of the reins when we're dealing with our kids. Let them be free. Kids sense our anxiety and it's, it's wearing. And remember, we need to let kids be kids. And as Dr. Matheson mentioned, kids want to be good. I want to let you know about a couple of resources, a couple of books that were recommended by Dr. Matheson. We got The Whole Brain Child. And we also got Raising a Secure Child. We got links to those in the show notes. And as we talked about earlier, if you go through the links, it does actually help support the show. We have become Amazon affiliates. There's also a link to an Audible subscription, which also supports the show. So if that is your Huckleberry, there's links to that. Otherwise, you know you can reach us at quadcast99 at gmail.com for any comments. At Twitter, we're at quadcast. You can find us on Facebook, like that page. And we just opened a YouTube channel. Bling, bling. Anyway, guys, thanks so much for listening. I can't wait to connect with you next week. Peace.